Hello, and welcome to the Balanced Book Club with the Emirates Literature Foundation. You are here with Andrea, Annabelle, and me, Ahlam. Reading books is our only chance to live inside someone else's skin and see the world through their eyes. Whether it's crime, romance, or nonfiction, through books we are able to make ourselves at home in another person's mind and feel what it is like to be them. At the Emerson Literature Foundation, we all like to read great books that allow us to experience the worlds we do not inhabit. So today we're going to talk about some of those books and the reading list inspired by the Black Lives Matter movement. Hi guys, it's really good to see you and Annabelle and I being back in the office in a different setting. So nice to see you back in the office. It's odd, we are, we're in the same building, but we are in different rooms. We're still having our meetings online, but it's good to be back, dressing up for work, being back into life. Um, it's, it's been really good to be back here. Before we start talking about reading lists inspired by Black Lives Matter, I wanted to share a quote with you. So Dr. Anamik Saha is the author of Race and the Cultural Industries, and he co-wrote a report this year, which was titled Rethinking Diversity in Publishing. And the foreword was actually written by Bernadine Evaristo, who wrote Girl, Woman, Other, which is a book that everyone is still talking about. And mm -hmm. it's available in full for reference because the, the full report you should read is really interesting at spreadtheword.org.uk. We'll also post that link on our blog. Yes. Yeah. yeah. For anyone who wants. Yeah. This is what Dr. Anamik said when he was introducing the report and talking about it in an article in The New Statesman. He said, in the build-up to the launch of the report, the murder of George Floyd inspired a new wave of Black Lives Matter protests with an unprecedented spread across the globe. Suddenly, our report into the issue of diversity in a very privileged industry felt trivial in relation to the literal matter of black life and death. Yet if racism is about the dehumanization of people of color and the higher rates of death in black, Asian and minority ethnic communities from coronavirus exposes how dispensably these lives are treated, one of the most powerful things about books and especially the fiction written by authors of color is how they can restore humanity. And I wanted to mention that before we started because I think it probably echoes how we feel as members of a community who believe in the importance of the right book at the right time and diverse reading lists to combat the danger of what Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie said about the single story, the dangers of the single story. It's true. It's like, you know, you'll see a lot of people who say, you know, you should consume art or consume literature purely from an art standpoint and, and, and how good the, art, the, the work is. But when what's pre being presented to you is not equal and is not fair, then, it, then it's up to the individual person to make the, those choices to make sure that you are getting the different narrative like, like you say there. And I think we discussed this uh, in a previous episode where we looked at publishing numbers in, in the United States in particular. Andrea, I think you have those numbers that we can go through. So the statistics say that every year, 84% of all books published in the US are by white authors. 5% are from by Asian authors, 4% are mixed, 3% are Latin American, and the remaining 2% are black authors. And 
this is obviously not representative of the population in any way. So that's quite telling that there are a huge number of people who just do not see themselves represented in the industry, which probably means that they don't see themselves represented in the stories that are being told either. I mean, that is insane, right? In 2020, to Mm. think that there's such inequality in publishing, but also across all all walks of life. Some of the things that come up about the publishing industry specifically in terms of diversity and some of the issues there. For example, when books are pitched, they're pitched in the context of something called a comp title. If you like X, Y, and Z, you will like this. I mean, it's fairly common Mm. to see that on the cover of books. And that's that's how marketing works. You know, you have to give people context, which, you know, we understand so that they'll think, okay, I like that other thing. I'll buy this thing. Fair enough. Mm -hmm. But Celeste Ng, who wrote Little Fires Everywhere, I don't know if you're familiar with that book. Yeah. Yeah. So she's written an article about how this works and and how it impacts uh, minority communities. The article was called Why I Don't Want to Be the Next Amy Tan. And she said, check any bookshelf of contemporary fiction and you'll see what I mean. Black writers get compared to black writers, Jewish writers to Jewish writers, gay writers to gay writers. According to the publisher's description, my friend, Preeta Samarasan's novel, Evening is the Whole Day, is sure to earn her a place alongside Arundhati Roy, Kiran Desai, and Zadie Smith. I teased her, a place on the shelf of brown women writers. So she goes on to say, worst of all, such comparisons place undue weight on the writer's ethnicity, suggesting that writers like Tan, Chang, and Kingston are telling first and foremost a story about being Chinese, not stories about families, love, loss, or universal human experience. And I feel the same way with the way a lot of books by writers of colour are marketed. I think that's a really good point. Imagine how depressing it would be to spend years writing a book for you to then be marketed as the, you know, the two things that are the most obvious things when people look at you, like your skin colour and your, you know, your height. Yeah. yeah. It, it, would, it would be soul destroying. Yeah. You put so much of yourself into this and it's so much more than just what you happen to look like. I had lunch with Azar Nafisi, who is a Persian author, but a Persian American, and she's lived in Washington, D.C. for over 40 years. She teaches English literature in Johns Hopkins. And she says, anytime I'm invited anywhere to speak, it's always about oppressed women in the Middle East or veiled women who have taken off their scarves and, and such conversations. And she says, why can't I just go and talk about English literature? Why can't I talk about Ernest Hemingway? I mean, those are the kind of things that I, t- I teach and I talk about in my daily life. It's just crazy how people are boxed but that's that's just the way of the world right yeah that's the the slight sense of discomfort that i have from some of the reading lists that have surfaced because of black lives matter because the publishing industry isn't serving those titles that means that you need spotlights on diversity you need those things to be highlighted but at the same time by putting all of these incredible writers and works of art that aren't specifically trying to teach white people about how to not be racist by lumping Mm. them into that category you are somehow taking away like you said the the art the the creativity the Mm. the work that has gone into writing that 
that piece of fiction in the same way that a white writer has put in, you know, creativity research and, and isn't put in a category of other white writers. Absolutely. At this point, I really have to share a quote from Kylie Reid, who's the author of Such a Fun Age, who recently Mm -hmm. said, and I think she was probably channeling a lot of other black creatives saying, stop expecting life lessons from all black art. Just let it be Mm -hmm. art. And you you can you can feel her frustration in those words, I think. Yeah. So true. And and I, I actually wasn't planning on going first today and talking about my book, but what you said, I mean, I have to say when I read the book that I'm going to talk about, I read Becoming by Michelle Obama, which was, you know, one of the, I think it was the most sold autobiography of all time. I mean, when I read this book, I just read it from a perspective of a woman struggling with work and life balance, you know, finding love and then going through the struggles of marriage, remembering painful moments from your childhood, infertility and all of those things that, you know, many women go through. And I I just found her to be such a relatable person. And I, I didn't, although there was moments where she talks about obviously how she's perceived being the first African-American first lady of the United States and, and how the media portrayed her just because she was so foreign. This has never been seen before, you know, this moments where whenever she's serious and because she she's active in that she's not this like dormant first lady who is only there to make sure the kids are okay in a, in a complicated setting and, and hosting dinner parties. She was actually active. She, she had uh, initiatives of her own that she was pushing forward. She has things that she's passionate about, where which she used the platform for. And then the media portrays her as this angry black woman. More often than not, she's like, in comparison with any other first lady, my outfits have always been scrutinized. And, and you know, what I wear is, is never right, you know, if it's too much or too little. And there are some of those struggles that she goes through as an African-American woman in her position. Isn't that like the most universal thing for women though for their outfits to be scrutinized any woman in any spotlight yeah so you know if anything doesn't that make her feel so much more relatable so much more relatable absolutely and in reading this book I didn't feel like this was the story of an African-American woman first and foremost you know she was just a woman going through life and trying to make make it to who she was going to become but I do love obviously there's 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 one line which is iconic that she, you know, she said that everybody remembers from her time with her husband in office in the 2016 Democratic Convention, when she says, when they go low, we go high. And that kind of feels like the theme of her life. When, whenever people try to paint her with a certain brush or put her within their own ideas, it takes so much inner strength to say, no, I'm going to tell my own narrative. And even if no matter how low they go, I'm going to come up and be the woman that I want to be, regardless of my situation, my color, my race, and whatever people want to want to shape me as. But definitely feel like this book was, as a woman, very relatable. And I'd recommend it to any woman anywhere in the world to read. Tracy Sherrod is the editorial director of Amistad, which is America's oldest black publishing imprint. Mm. She gave an interview and it was all about her journey to getting where she is today. And she didn't always work for Amistad. She wasn't always editorial director. Like everyone in publishing, she started somewhere else. And she was working for Henry Holt and Company. And in the early days of working for that company, Barack Obama, before he became famous, tried to publish a book, which has since been published, called Dreams from My Father, which was his early memoir. 
And when it came in, she was told, we don't really publish people with non-traditional names. Wow. It was turned down because of that. She continued to say in the interview, the sad part about all that are the books that never got through. We don't even know what we're missing. I know a few very important books that were missing that would contribute to the dialogue, but those are books that no one wanted to buy at the time. And that's the real loss to publishing. And she was also asked about the way lists of writers of color are kind of compiled. And I think her Mm. response to this is the most relevant. As editorial director of Amistad, they publish books by writers of color in all sorts of different genres. So in a way, like their list is a massive curation of this. And she said, in the 1970s, the first period in which black books and black authors were really making entryways into the business, boards of education realized that American history textbooks were not right. They didn't want to correct it because that would have been a big job. So what they decided to do was have supplemental materials about African-American history, about Indian history, et cetera, et cetera. So that's how to Toni Morrison got into the business working on those kinds of texts. So initially, people of color literature was for the purpose of educating others and ourselves too about history. That has continued. The purpose of all books should be to educate someone about something. I also think books should be for escape. Books should be for pleasure. If all black books were about racism, where would we be able to escape it and get away from it? And I think Michelle Obama herself as well, she had a guidance counselor tell her that she's not Ivy League material. Really? And then she goes off to Princeton. Wow. She goes off to Princeton. And then she, you know, she's the first African-American, you know, first lady of the United States. And but there's people in your life who will try to bring you down and just don't see your potential. But that doesn't mean anything, you know, as long as you believe in what you have and you you keep your eye on the prize, I think that's what matters. Yeah. Speaking of the prize, mm-hmm. I just think we have to we have to celebrate that the British Book Awards just recently had its first ever black and first ever female winner of Book of the Year. So it's taken an awfully long time to get to this point. But, yeah. but the author of Queenie was just named winner two weeks ago, which is such a wonderful book. So Candace Carty Williams, her so Queenie has been likened to speaking of what we we're talking about earlier about how if you like this, you might also like that. People have called it a black Bridget Jones, which personally I mm. think is such a compliment to Bridget Jones, but for that to be the way to sell it feels wrong if you if you know the book. But to be fair, even though I think it's a compliment to Bridget Jones, that was such a massive hit that if that Mm. makes lots Mm. of people buy this book that can only be a good thing true yeah so all week i've been really fascinated with the name of annabelle's choice for today's (laughs) today's podcast and my sister the serial killer and i'm dying to know all about it so annabelle please tell us This is a classic example of a book that I think belongs on a list of just amazing books that you have to read. It's called My Sister the Serial Killer by Oyin Khan Braithwaite. I'm not spoiling anything by telling you what I'm about to tell you because this is how the book opens. But it's a short, punchy novel and it is about two sisters called Korede and Ayula. And Korede is the older sister. She works in a hospital. I believe she's a nurse. And 
beyond the basic sibling rivalry that will probably be familiar to anyone who has siblings, Ayula is kind of the popular one, the pretty one, according to everyone else around the sisters. She receives all of the attention and Kareli is the, the older, more sensible one who's always having to clean up her messes. And by messes, I mean murders. So that's where it kind of deviates from your classic tale of sibling rivalry. At the point that we meet the two sisters and Kurede, she is cleaning up after her sister. She's disposing of a body. And this is the third, I wouldn't say boyfriend, because it, as you read the novel, you discover that it doesn't really seem like she gets far enough into a relationship to call them boyfriends. <laughs> but the kind of like the third male love interest that she has killed. And technically, that makes her sister a serial killer. And there's this question throughout the book, and I'm not going to spoil it for anyone, as to whether or not she does, it is a coincidence and she kills them out of self-defense, or whether, you know, there's something more malevolent behind her motives and who she is as a person. And the key conflict of the story progresses beyond just whether or not she'll be found out, but also into the fact that Ayula kind of makes every man who meets her fall in love with her because she's so beautiful. And one day she turns up at the hospital where Karede works and Karede is sort of in love with the doctor that she works with at the hospital. And on a kind of basic level, the fact that he has eyes for Ayula and wants to ask her out is already frustrating enough. But then there's this added layer of fear on behalf of the older sister that oh my gosh, I love him, I can't have him, but my sister may also kill him. What do I do? <laughs> and she's completely torn. And, and from that point, the novel just progresses. And it feels wrong to say that a novel about a serial killer is fun, but it does have this kind of wry humor that always keeps you on your toes. And also it's got a family saga and cultural conversation about sexism and also about uh, where they live because I believe it's set in Nigeria. So there's a lot happening in a novel that's only like 200 and something or 300 pages. So I highly recommend it to everybody. It sounds awesome. I feel like out of all of the books that you've recommended so far, I'm dying to read that one the most. <laughs> it sounds so much fun. It is fun. And you know, it feels weird to say that about a book called My Sister the Serial Killer. <laughs> But there you go. It is super fun. I, I, I'm wondering what kind of, if we're doing that, if you like this, you might also like that. I don't know what you'd pair that book with. Any ideas? It made me think of Dexter, the series, mm. because it just mm. in the sense that you know someone is bad, but you still, I was going to say root for them, but you, but you don't because you're rooting for the older sister. You're not necessarily rooting for Ayula. She's, she's mm. really annoying in the book, actually. Um, yeah. And also, I don't know if Dexter has the same sense of humor, does it? Because it is really funny. Yeah, but that, that's why I was actually thinking Dexter, because the tone of it is, it's lighter than it should be. Yeah, okay. Yeah. I didn't watch Dexter enough, I think. That is an excellent, excellent recommendation. So we've gone from Michelle Obama's Becoming to My Sister the Serial Killer. What random pick is going to be the third one <laughs> does it relate in any oh. way um i'm gonna say no so i've cho I've found it really hard to choose but i've chosen one of my favorite authors actually called helen oyoyemi who is so talented 
she wrote her first we almost had i know last year i know festival. almost she is <laughs> such a, she is so talented um, she wrote her first novel when she was 18 years old and that went on to win awards and so on she is just phenomenal and i haven't read all her books but all the ones that i have read have this one thing in common that they kind of sit really uncomfortably be- between sort of literary fiction and magical realism and they just kind of throw you off balance while you're reading them you're not quite sure what to think and and um and so the book i want to talk about is called um boy snowbird which is uh it's a few years old and it's um it's unlike anything else. Speaking of, if you like that, uh, you might like this. I, I'll come up with something for the end. But it's about, um, it's a story about this blonde, black-eyed young woman called Boy, who, and, and um, just a little side note there, that is so typical that everything is slightly off. She's a, a this woman called Boy, which already is sort of making you think what's going on here. And she escapes this abusive father, uh, missing mother missing in action, she escapes an abusive father by getting on a bus from New York to the last stop, which is a small town in Massachusetts. And this was in the time before racial segregation had ended. She arrives in this town, gets a, a job, and she's kind of, it's a little, this part of the story is a little bit of the American drifter story. She arrives somewhere, gets a job, lives in some kind of temporary lodgings. And she meets this man, Arturo, who is a widower with a beautiful daughter called Snow. And they, boy, Arturo and Snow become this quite happy family unit. Boy and Arturo gets married and she is quite close to Snow until boy gets pregnant and gives birth to a child who is black. At which point Arturo's mother accuses her of infidelity, which is hasn't happened. And then it is revealed that that things are not as they seem. And actually, when you read the story, I'm not going to give away the full story, but when you read it, absolutely nothing is what it seems. And it's hidden identities. And there is also this motif of, of people who are missing. So her mother is missing. There's a, other family members missing. And, and our main character, Boy, changes from this sort of abused young woman who's driven away from New York by, by this father to becoming sort of a, a, I wouldn't say happy, but a loving, adjusted person when she's married and she's looking after her stepdaughter. And then she kind of changes again into some kind of evil stepmother when she has her own offspring. And it's phenomenal and really confusing at, <laughs> and so good. I would say if you like this, if you like Haruki Murakami, you'd probably like I like the fact that you said it's amazing and also really confusing because the Goodreads comment section for Boy Snowbird is a hilarious space. Oh, brilliant. It's very Marmite. It's full of people who go, this is confusing, but brilliant. And other people going, what the heck? I want my money back. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think that is probably uh, fair enough. It, it is completely Marmite. It's, there's so much symbolism. It's just like, if you're in a book club, it's a perfect book because mm. there's so much to discuss. There's so, it's so dense and so many different threads you can pull at, pull at and then 
things just unravel. There are too many great books and authors to talk about in one podcast. So do let us know who you think we've missed. Pop a comment below if you're watching on YouTube or send us a message on social media. You can also email us on comms at emeraldslipfest.com. We could not fit all our favorites into this one episode. So we've got a new post on our website, on our blog. That is elfdubai.org forward slash blog. We've got lots of additional recommendations there. And that is all for this week. Join us next time when we'll be talking about our favorite classics, as well as some classics that are not our favorites, perhaps. Now hit subscribe and give us a rating wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you and goodbye for now.